people do strange things, but you gotta give me a little something more than just plucking it out of thin air that, oh, the motive was a stolen pineapple chunk. Welcome to the Brothers in Crime podcast. We are brothers. We talk about true crime. We don't take ourselves too seriously. And you shouldn't either. This is part three of our series on the murder of six-year-old John Benet Ramsey on Christmas night in 1996. If you haven't listened to the first two parts, go back to episode 31 and 32. It's okay, we'll wait right here for you. Okay, now that you're all caught up, we'll pick up where we left off in the kitchen the morning after the murder. While we're on the kitchen counter, the kind of the island counter, whatever you want to call it, there's another, there's some other things there that are, man, you want to talk about flashpoint people argue about in this case. So there is a bowl of pineapple that has some, I might understand, had some milk in it because that was like a dessert treat thing that they liked. And so that's in a bowl. There's a spoon and and then there's also a glass of iced tea next to the bowl. This sounds disgusting. I I mean, I agree with you. When I heard it, I, yeah. And these people got all kind of money, so it probably wasn't even sweet tea. Probably not. They're probably health conscious, health, health conscious and whatnot. It's probably green. No, it wasn't green tea. I think it was like a Lipton, just, you know, regular tea, little tea bag in there. So the spoon that's in the bowl, you know, one thing people have noted, if you're eating some pineapple chunks or whatever, oh, yeah, often, often people will use a smaller spoon. So this is a big tablespoon size spoon in like a smaller bowl with these pineapple chunks. So it, it looked kind of silly. Me personally, I mean, I like to use a big spoon for everything. I don't care if it's cereal, ice cream, whatever. Right. I was going to say, I know people who don't know what a teaspoon is because they're using a shovel for whatever they need a spoon for. Yeah, I'm firmly in the shovel category, um, although I would not shovel pineapple chunks in milk. That That's pretty gross. The bowl and the spoon, they recover, they, they dust those for prints, and they have Patsy's prints and Burke's prints. The glass with the iced tea has Burke's prints. Now, why does any of this even matter? So I don't know, because it sounds like Burke had a snack. So what? Right. Well, this comes back to the whole, what happened the night that you came home from the White's Christmas party? Well, you know, we went, John Bonet went to bed and then Burke and he went to bed. We all went to bed and that was the end of it. And did you ever get up that night? No, nobody got up. Well, this stuff looked like, you know, it had been out recent. It was out, you know, either from the night or maybe possibly like the afternoon before, but not that long. So they asked the Ramseys, well, hey, did you, you know, and they're like, well, no, we don't remember that. And they asked Burke, you know, do, you, do you remember that? No, I don't remember that. In the autopsy report, whenever they, or, or not the autopsy report, but when, when John Bonet's stomach contents were examined, there was a finding that there were what appeared to be fresh pineapple chunks that had not yet been digested in her stomach contents. Okay, so we know who ate the pineapples and milk. Ugh. <laughs> you're funny. Yeah, you're you, I don't think you understand like the, the internet community. I mean, Reddit, there are whole forums, I think, dedicated to just this freaking pineapple bowl and, and stuff. So let me lay it out for you. And then you tell me what you think about it. Essentially, you have people who say, okay, she, so there's this bowl of pineapple that John Bonet ate pineapple out of because it's in her stomach. And it makes sense that it had to be this because it was this fresh pie. Like it all lined up. It seems like she ate some pineapple out of this bowl. But the bowl has Burke and Patsy's fingerprints. The glass has Burke's fingerprints. So this shows that everybody was awake or that at least Burke and John Bonet were awake after they were supposed supposedly asleep. So I think those who, who feel that the Ramses were involved say this points to signs that they're lying about what happened that night, that they're covering things up and that they just missed this bowl of pineapple or didn't think that it would be important. Well, maybe Burke is taller and he could reach the glasses out of the cabinet and John Bonet had her brother get her a glass. That's why his fingerprints are on that. And Patsy got the bowl, touched the bowl, took him out of the dishwasher. I don't know any number of things. Like these are people that would be touching the dishes in that house as you, you know, you would expect them to be. I don't get the big deal. It means some point. 30 minutes to three hours, four hours before she died, she ate these pineapples. Well, so in, in, we'll get into some of the theories in a little bit, but just to, just to kind of flesh this out some, and I'm not saying I agree with any of this. This is like, this is what some people, some experts have theorized. So I'll, I'll throw out the scenario and you just tell me what you think about it. So some people theorize that at some point that night, like you said, bowl went or bowl, bowl, Burke went and got himself a snack. And John Bonet came down for whatever reason, and she snatched a piece of pineapple out of his bowl. He just lost his mind and 
beat her to death with a mag light flashlight. Seriously? That, that's, that is like some people's, like, this is what happened in this case. Is there any evidence that suggests he was unstable or abusive toward her prior to this? I will, I will play devil's advocate. I, I, I think that's tenuous at best. I, I wouldn't say either of those things. I, I will say that the things that people point to, and I think we talked about this maybe, I don't remember if it was during the episode or after we finished recording. There had been an incident prior where he was like practicing his golf swing and John Bonet was kind of caught one in the face. But uh, it seemed that most people who were aware of that incident said she basically was walking behind him and he caught her with his backswing. So I guess if you consider that abusive or whatever, maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, incidents where he was like intentional violence or like a an uncontrolled temper or something, because I don't think you'd go. I mean, they're close in age, six and nine, uh, but she's the baby girl, I'm sure. And I'm sure they, they would have little disagreements as brothers and sisters close in age would have. And But I don't see she took a pineapple out of my bowl, so beat her with a magnet. It just, whatever. Anything's possible, but that seems like a stretch to me. And then tell me where this other DNA came from and whose palm print is there. Yeah. Are those just red herrings or... I, they can't be though. The so, DNA can't, the palm print, maybe the DNA, come on, man. So that we're not accused of, of hiding things. Cause you know, that's, you go on the Reddit forums or wherever else and everybody's quick to, oh, you're just ignoring the evidence. You're ignoring the evidence. So to, to throw a little bit more on the, the idea that, you know, well, you said kind of, is there any history of anything weird or different with the relationship between Burke and John Bonet. There are some who have said, you know, of course, he was their first child, so he's kind of awesome. And then she came along and ruined everything. Not ruined everything, but you get the idea. I'm playing it up, right? So, like, she comes along and she's like their little girl and she's doing the pageants. She's the princess and the baby. This is probably exactly how you felt about me, if we're being honest. So there's this dynamic, but in that there is no, you know, oh, well, you know, he tried to drown her one time. What Macaulay Culkin in that one movie with the lake, you know, there was none of that. There's right. nothing like that. The The only thing that I think that kind of jumps out as being a little strange is there is some, some reporting and whatever that apparently he had a, a thing where he would like smear feces on things. And at one point, I think... When they investigated and searched her room, John Bonet's room, in the aftermath of all this, they found, uh, I think it was like some candy or something she had received for Christmas that had had some fecal matter smeared on it. Now, I'm unaware whether they tested it to see, is it hers? Is it a dog's? Is it actually Burke's? Is it human? Is it whatever? But given the stories and the people who would argue this theory would say, well, here you go. You know, he, he didn't like her and he didn't like her so much that he would, you know, smear poop on things in her room. And so it makes sense. Then the next logical step, this is their argument, right? Was, you know, he snapped because she took his pineapple or whatever. Well, maybe, but nine-year-old boys tend to be into gross things. And for him, he may have thought it was humor, even though to the rest of us, it was. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, there's lots of, there's lots of room for trying to figure all that stuff out. I don't think that's enough to say he's a psychopath. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I, and there is no, you know, to your point, right. That, that I've found or that I'm aware of, there's no incident prior to this where, you know, he's like holding her down and trying to beat her or hits her with, you know, they, they point to the golf club thing, but that is so easily explainable. I mean, if you have kids, you know, yes, like they play games and he's, he's playing, you know, he's practicing his golf swing and stuff happens, you know, you're playing baseball and you whack somebody. I mean, that kind of stuff with little kids happens all the time. That's very common. Right. It's why mothers are always gasping because they, they see these accidents coming and kids are blissfully oblivious. If it were, if this is what happened, if he beat her with the mag light, so the nine-year-old then is going to be smart enough to get his prints off the mag light and off the batteries, but he's not going to wipe the glass of tea. And then where's the, there had to be some kind of struggle there if, you know, it's not his DNA that's under her fingernails. So Where's the transfer of evidence between the two of them? Where's some, some blood, some something, scratches on him? I don't know. Yeah, I think this is great, but I, I want to put a pause in that because I want to come back to this conversation. But before we get into sort of thinking through, you know, our thoughts and, and observations for the case, I think it's important to take a look at the conflicting conclusions from the people who have worked this case close to it, who have actually seen the evidence. Because the reality is, while a lot of stuff has been leaked 
and a lot of stuff has been released even that shouldn't have been in this case throughout the years, there's, I'm sure, evidence that exists that we don't know about, we haven't seen. No doubt. You're just talking to me about some disgusting ass pineapples and milk and then tell me this theory that, well, some people just think that she took one of his pineapples and he said, that's it, tonight's the night. Yeah, I didn't get to play my toys all day. They've been dragging me all over Hills Half Acre. I'm done. And I just think that's a bit much. Yeah, well, I... I you got, like, I'm not saying it's impo- anything, you know, people do strange things, but you, you got to give me a little something more than just plucking it out of thin air that, oh, the motive was a stolen pineapple chunk. Right. And I, I have lots of things I want to say, but I want to get to this stuff first. So I, I'm, I'm excited to, to talk through this with you, but... First, let's, let's consider some of the experts, um, or, or I sh- well, we'll just say people who have been close, who have reviewed the case either firsthand or have had an opportunity to review the firsthand evidence for themselves and are considered experts in the field. So just to take you through some of that, from a New York Times article talking about former Boulder, Colorado police detective Steve Thomas. Uh, this was one of the investigators, one of the, the top lead investigators on the case. He spent almost two years investigating this murder. He says that the murderer is Patsy Ramsey. Oh. He, he resigned from the police department in mid-1998. He concluded that Miss Ramsey strangled her daughter in a panic on Christmas night, 1996, after accidentally causing a serious wound to the little girl's head. He also contends that the girl's father, John Ramsey, after realizing what had happened, chose to protect his wife rather than help the authorities determine what had happened. Now, he outlines this theory in the book, John Bonet inside the Ramsey murder investigation. Mr. Thomas was the first person with direct knowledge of the investigation to publicly accuse Miss Ramsey of killing her daughter. He also says that he concluded that Mr. Ramsey played no role in the girl's death, only the cover-up. And Thomas was one of the original detectives assigned to investigate the murder, and he claimed in an eight-page letter of resignation that the DA's office had thoroughly compromised the investigation. And the Denver Post wrote that, quote, an emotional and obviously angry Thomas accused District Attorney Alex Hunter's office of thwarting the investigation. Now, this resignation letter is something to behold. Steve Thomas's in resignation letter reads, and it is, it's addressed to the Boulder police chief. Chief Beckner, on June 22nd, I submitted a letter to Chief Kobe requesting a leave of absence from the Boulder Police Department. In response to persistent speculation as to why I chose to leave the Ramsey investigation, this letter explains more fully those reasons. Although my concerns were well known for some time, I tried to be gracious in my departure, addressing only health concerns. However, after a month of soul-searching and reflection, I feel I must now set the record straight. The primary reason I chose to leave is my belief that the district attorney's office continues to mishandle the Ramsey case. I have been troubled for many months with many aspects of the investigation. Albeit an uphill battle of a case to begin with, it became a nearly impossible investigation because of the political alliances, philosophical differences, and professional egos that blocked progress in more ways and on more occasions than I can detail in this memorandum. I and others voiced these concerns repeatedly. In the interest of hoping justice would be served, we tolerated it, except for those closed-door sessions when detectives protested in frustration, where fists hit the table, where detectives demanded that the right things be done. The wrong things were done and made it a manner of simple principle that I could not continue to participate as it stood with the district attorney's office. As an organization, we remained silent when we should have shouted. The Boulder Police Department took a handful of detectives days after the murder and handed us this case. As one of those five primary detectives, we tackled it for a year and a half. We conducted an exhaustive investigation, followed the evidence where it led us, and were faithfully and professionally committed to this case. Although not perfect, cases rarely are. During 18 months on the Ramsey investigation, my colleagues and I worked the case day and night, and in spite of tied hands, on June 1st and 2nd, 1998, we crunched 30,000 pages of investigation to its essence and put our cards on the table, delivering the case in a formal presentation to the district attorney's office. We stood confident in our work. Very shortly thereafter, though, The detectives who know this case better than anyone were advised by the district attorney's office that we would not be participating as grand jury advisory witnesses. The very entity with whom we shared our investigation or our investigative case file to see justice sought, I felt, was betraying this case. We were never afforded true prosecutorial support. There was never a consolidation of resources. All legal opportunities were not made available. How were we expected to solve this case when the district attorney's office was crippling us with their positions? I believe they were, literally, 
facilitating the escape of justice. During the in this investigation, consider the following. During the investigation, detectives would discover, collect, and bring evidence to the district attorney's office only to have it summarily dismissed or rationalized as insignificant. The most elementary of investigative efforts, such as obtaining telephone and credit card records, were met without support. Search warrants were denied. The significant opinions of national experts were casually dismissed or ignored by the district attorney's office. Even the experienced FBI were waved aside. Those who chose not to cooperate were never compelled before a grand jury early in this case, as detectives suggested only weeks after the murder, while information and memories were fresh. An informant, for reasons his own, came to detectives about conduct occurring inside the district attorney's office, including allegations of a plan intended only to destroy a man's career. We carefully listened with that knowledge. The department did nothing other than to alert the accused and in the process burn the two detectives who captured the exchange on an undercover wire, incidentally, who came forth with this information. One of the results of that internal whistleblowing was witnessing Detective Commander Eller, who could not tolerate what was occurring, lose his career and reputation undeservedly, scapegoated in a manner which only heightened my concerns. It did not take much inferential reasoning to realize that any dissidents were readily silenced. In a departure from protocol, police reports, physical evidence, and investigative information we shared with Ramsey defense attorneys, all of this in the district attorney's spirit of cooperation. I served a search warrant only to find a later defense attorneys were simply giving copies of the evidence it yielded. An FBI agent whom I didn't even know quietly tipped me off about the DA's office about what the DA's office was doing behind our backs, conducting investigation the police department was wholly unaware of. I was advised not to speak to certain witnesses and all but dissuaded from pursuing particular investigative efforts. Polygraphs were acceptable for some, but others seemed immune for such requests. Innocent people were not cleared, publicly or otherwise, even when it was unmistakably the right thing to do. As reputations and lives were destroyed, some in the district attorney's office to this day pursue weak, defenseless, and innocent people in the shameless tactics that one couldn't believe more bizarre if it were made up. I was told by one in the district attorney's office about being unable to break a particular police officer from his resolute accounts of events he had witnessed. In my opinion, this was not trial preparation. This was an attempt to derail months of hard work. I was repeatedly reminded by some in the district attorney's office just how powerful and talented and resourceful particular defense attorneys were. How could decisions be made this way? There is evidence that was critical to the investigation that to this day has never been collected because neither search warrants nor other means were supported to do so. Not to mention evidence which still sits today untested in the laboratory as differences continue about how to proceed. While investigative efforts were rebuffed, my search warrant affidavits and attempts to gather evidence in the murder investigation of a six-year-old child were met with refusals and instead, the suggestion that we ask the permission of the Ramseys before proceeding. And just before conducting the Ramsey interviews, I thought it inconceivable I was being lectured on building trust. These are but a few of the many examples of why I chose to leave, having to convince, to plead at times, to a district attorney's office to assist us in the murder of a little girl by way of the most basic of investigative requests was simply absurd. When my detective partner and I had to literally hand search tens of thousands of receipts because we didn't have a search warrant to assist us otherwise, we did so. But we lost tremendous opportunities to make progress, to seek justice, and to know the truth. Auspicious timing and strategy could have made a difference. When the might of the criminal justice system should have been brought all it had to bear on this investigation and didn't, we remained silent. We were trying to deliver a murder case with hands tied behind our backs. It was difficult and our frustrations understandable. It was an assignment without a chance of success. Politics seemed to trump justice. Even outsiders quickly assessed the situation. As the FBI politely noted early on, the government isn't in charge of this investigation. As the nation watched, appropriately anticipating a fitting response to the murder of the most innocent of victims, I stood bothered as to what occurred behind the scenes. Those inside this case knew what was going on. 18 months gave us a unique perspective. We learned to ignore the campaign of misinformation in which we were said to be bumbling along, or else just pursuing one or two suspects in some ruthless vendetta. Much of what appeared in the press was orchestrated by particular sources wishing to discredit the Boulder Police Department. We watched the media spun while we were prohibited from exercising First Amendment rights. As disappointment and frustration pervaded, detectives would remark to one another, if it reaches a particular point, I'm walking away. But we would always tolerate it just one more time. 
last year when we discovered hidden cameras inside the Ramsey house, only to realize the detectives had been unwittingly videotaped, this should have rocked the police department off its foundation. Instead, we allowed that, too, to pass without challenge. The detective's enthusiasm became simply resigned frustration, acquiescing to that which should never have been tolerated. In the media blitz, the pressure of the whole world watching, important decisions seemed to be premised on how it would play publicly. Among at least a few of the detectives, there's something wrong here became a catchphrase. I witnessed others having to make decisions which impacted their lives and careers. Watched the soul-searching that occurred as the ultimate questions were pondered. As it goes, evils that befall the world are not nearly so often caused by bad men as they are by good men who stand silent when an opinion must be voiced. Although several good men in the police department shouted loudly behind closed doors, the organization stood silent at what continued to occur unchallenged. Last spring, you too seemed at a loss. I was taken aback when I was reminded of what happened to Commander Eller when he stuck his neck out. When reminded how politically powerful the DA was. When reminded of the hundreds of other cases the department had to file with this district attorney's office and that this was but one case. And finally, when I was asked, what do you want done? The system burned down? It struck me dumb. But when you conceded that there were those in the DA's office we had to simply accept as, quote, defense witnesses, and when we were reduced to simply recording our objections for documentation purposes, I knew I was not going to participate in this much longer. I believe the district attorney's office is thoroughly compromised. When we were told by one of the district attorney's office months before we had even completed our investigation that this case is not prosecutable, we shook our heads in disbelief. A lot could have been forgiven, the lesser transgressions ignored, for the right things done. Instead, those in the district attorney's office encouraged us to allow them to work their magic, which I never fully understood. Did that magic include sharing our case file information with the defense attorneys? Dragging feet in evidence collection? or believing that two decades of used car dealing style plea bargaining was somehow going to solve this case? Right and wrong is just that. Some of these issues were not shades of gray. Decisions should have been made as such, whether a suspect, a penniless indigent, with a public defender or otherwise. As contrasted by my experiences in Georgia, for example, where my warrant affidavits were met with a sense of support and an obligation to the victim, having worked with able prosecutors in other jurisdictions, having worked cases where justice was aggressively sought, I have familiarity with these prosecution professionals who hold a strong sense of justice. And then, from Georgia, the Great Lakes, the East Coast, the South, I would return to Boulder to again be thoroughly demoralized. We delayed and ignored for far too long that which was right in defense of maintaining this dysfunctional relationship with the district attorney's office. This wasn't a runaway train that couldn't be stopped. Some of us bit our tongues as the public was told of this renewed cooperation between the police department and the district attorney's office. This at the very time the detectives and those in the district attorney's office weren't even on speaking terms. The same time you had to act as a liaison between the two agencies because the detectives couldn't tolerate it. I was quite frankly surprised, as you remarked on this camaraderie, that there had not yet been a fistfight. In Boulder, where the politics, policies, and pervasive thought has held for years, a criminal justice system designed to deal with such an event was not in place. Instead, we had an institution that, when needed most, buckled. The system was paralyzed, as to this day one continues to get away with murder. Will there be a real attempt at justice? I may be along, among the last to find out. The department assigned me some of the most sensitive and critical assignments in the Ramsey case, including search warrants and affidavits the Atlanta projects, the interviews of the Ramseys, and many other sensitive assignments I won't mention. I crisscrossed the country conducting interviews and investigation, pursuing pedophiles and drifters, chasing and discarding leads. I submitted over 250 investigative reports for this case alone. I'd have been happy to assist the grand jury, but the detectives who know this case better than anyone were told we would not be allowed as grand jury advisory witnesses, as is commonplace. If a grand jury is convened, the records will be sealed, and we will not witness what goes on inside such a proceeding. What part of the case gets presented? What doesn't? District Attorney Hunter's continued reference to a runaway grand jury is also puzzling. Is he afraid that he cannot control the outcome? Why would one not simply present evidence to jurors and let the jury decide? Perhaps the DA is hoping for a voluntary confession one day. What's needed, though, is an effective district attorney to conduct the inquiry, not a remorseful killer. The district attorney's office should be ethical and judicial compass for the community, ensuring that justice is served, or at least sought. Instead, our DA has become a spinning compass for the media. The perpetuating inference continues that justice is somehow just around the corner. I do not see that occurring as the two-year anniversary of this murder approaches. 
It is my belief the district attorney's office has effectively crippled this case. The time for intervention is now. It is difficult to imagine a more compelling situation for the appointment of an entirely independent prosecution team to be introduced into this matter who would oversee an attempt at righting this case. Unmistakably, and worst of all, we have failed a little girl named John Bonet, six years old. Many good people, decent, innocent citizens, are forever bound by the murder of this child. There is a tremendous obligation to them, but an infinitely greater obligation to her. As she rests in a small cemetery, far away from this anomaly of a place called Boulder. A distant second stands, the second tragedy, the failure of the system in Boulder. Ask the mistreated prosecution witnesses in this investigation, who cooperated for months, who now refuse to talk until a special prosecutor is established. Ask former detectives who have quietly tendered their shields in disheartment. Ask all those innocent people personally affected by this case who have had their lives upset because of the arbitrary label of suspect being attached. Ask the cops who cannot speak out because they still wear a badge. The list is long. I know that to speak out brings its own issues, but as you also know, there are others who are as disheartened as I am, who are biting their tongues, searching their consciences. I know what may occur. I may be portrayed as frustrated, disgruntled, not so. I have had an exemplary and decorated 13-year career as a police officer and detective. I didn't want to challenge the system. In no way do I wish to harm this case or subvert the long and arduous work that has been done. I only wish to speak up and ask for assistance in making a change. I want justice for a child who was killed in her home on Christmas night. This case has defined many aspects of all our lives and will continue to do so for our many days. My colleagues put their hearts and souls into this case, and I will take some satisfaction that it was the detective team who showed tremendous efforts and loyalties to seeking justice for this victim. Many sacrifices were made, families, marriages. In the latter months of the investigation, I was diagnosed with a disease which will require a lifetime of medication. Although my health declined, I was resolved to see this case through to a satisfactory closure. I did that on June 1st and 2nd, and on June 22nd, I requested a leave of absence without mention of what transpired in our department since Christmas of 96. What I witnessed for two years of my life was so fundamentally flawed, it reduced me to tears. Everything the badge ever meant to me was so foundationally shaken, one should never have to sell one's soul as a prerequisite to wear it. On June 26, after leaving the investigation for the last time and leaving the city of Boulder, I wept as I drove home, removing my detective shield and placing it on the seat beside me, later putting it in a desk drawer at home, knowing that I could never put it back on. There is some consolation that a greater justice awaits the person who committed these acts. Independent of this system we call justice, a greater justice awaits. Of that, at least, we can be confident. As a now infamous author, panicked in the night once penned, use that good southern common sense of yours. I will do just that. Originally from a small town where this would never have been tolerated, where respect for law and order and traditions were instilled in me, I will take that murderous author's out-of-context advice and use my good southern common sense to put this case into the perspective it necessitates. A precious child was murdered. There needs to be some consequence to that. Regretfully, I tender this letter and my police career, a calling which I loved. I do this because I cannot continue to sanction by my silence what has occurred in this case. It was never a fair playing field. The game was simply unacceptable anymore. And that's what makes this all so painful. The detectives never had a chance. If ever there was a case, and if ever there were a victim who truly meant something to the detectives pursuing the truth, this is it. If not this case, what case? Until such time an independent prosecutor is appointed to oversee this case, I will not be a part of this. What went on was simply wrong. I recalled a favorite passage recently, Atticus Fitch speaking to his daughter. Just remember that one thing does not abide by majority rule, Scout. It's your conscience. At 36 years old, I thought my life's passion as a police officer was carved in stone. I realized that although I may have to trade my badge for a carpenter's hammer, I will do so with a clear conscience. It is with a heavy heart that I offer my resignation from the Boulder Police Department in protest of this continuing travesty. Detective Steve Thomas, badge number 638. What do you think, Bob? Oh, this guy obviously has some real strong feelings about things. That's for sure. 
I'll tell you one part that just really resonated with me was the uh, political alliances, philosophical differences, and professional egos that blocked progress. Yeah, that's a real thing. Yeah, for sure. As I was reading it, something that struck me, and I, I, I want to be clear about what I'm saying here, is uh, well, that's a really long resignation letter. And so I just thought about there was some irony there in the fact that the, the ransom letter was super long. And then this guy's resignation letter is like basically a book, which, you know, I think that's practice for him. He did go on to author a book about the John Bonet case. Uh, so I guess maybe this was like a dry run of working it up or who knows, maybe the resignation letter was when he realized he had some some writing chops. I don't know. But you take that letter that was written by Steve Thomas, the detective, one of the detectives on the case, one of the primary detectives. And then you contrast that with, uh, you know, about a month or so after that resignation letter was tendered. Uh, that detective I mentioned earlier, Lou Smith, who had been hired by the DA's office to invest to be one of their investigators, he also resigned, uh, but for completely different reasons. Uh, his resignation letter w was only about two pages. But first, a little background on Lou. Uh, this guy is pretty legendary. As a detective, uh, Smith boasted that he never lost a homicide case in a career in which he worked on more than 200 murder cases. Essentially what he meant by that was in, in his cases where there was a suspect that was arrested and tried for their crime, he had a 100% conviction rate, which that is, that's, that's impressive. He also cleared some, some high profile cases and worked on some cold cases where, you know, they had stalled out and was able to, to find people, including in one case that he solved, um, it resulted in the, the arrest and conviction of a, a serial killer that was unknown to law enforcement before um, Lou worked the case. So pretty impressive guy. Probably most impressive to you would be that uh, he had done some work with uh, Joe Kenda. I think they were kind of at least somewhat buddies, and I know how you feel about old Joe. So My man, we share a brain. And yeah, so in September of 98, in his resignation letter, Smith stated, quote, John and Patsy Ramsey didn't kill their daughter. Smith also said Boulder police decided, quote, to follow a theory and let their theory direct them rather than allowing the evidence to direct them. The case tells me there is substantial credible evidence of an intruder and a lack of evidence that the parents are involved, end quote. So, you know, on the one end of the spectrum, you have uh, Mr. Thomas, who felt that the DA's office wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing and for various reasons was not handling the case appropriately. And then on the exact flip side of that, you have Lou Smith, who's this veteran detective who had retired from a uh, police department and then was hired by the DA's office, who says the Boulder Police Department is, you know, stuck on a theory and just trying to make the evidence fit that theory. So what you're saying here is uh, Smith and Thomas probably weren't having barbecues at each other's houses? I'm going to bet that they were not uh, bedfellows. Yeah, that'd be my guess. Uh, so what about the first arriving detective, Linda Arndt? What did she think about it? Well, on ABC's Good Morning America, Detective Linda Arndt said, quote, there's no doubt in my mind who killed John Bonet, end quote. So she's got it all figured out. She also said while the investigation was ongoing, she didn't think it was appropriate to say that name out loud which I can respect that. The ex-detective also told ABC's Good Morning America that she didn't believe the girl's killer would, would be brought to justice. And kind of elaborating on that, she said, quote, the person who killed John Bonet will not seek justice as we would like to see. But then she, she wouldn't elaborate any further. Now, these quotes are a bit more interesting in light of other comments she made during the interview. She said that she feared for her life as she spoke with John Ramsey shortly after John Bonet's body was found. You'll remember that her father, uh, John, brought John Bonet's body up from the basement, kind of later there, uh, sort of like the living room, den area, and Detective Arndt was right there. And so she says that she remembered in that moment, being close to John, looking at him, uh, that she was afraid for her life and that she remembered, quote, tucking my gun right next to me and consciously counting out the 18 bullets. I don't know what you do with that, but that's something. It'd be nice to know what she meant by that. She clearly thought John was uh, scary. She pretty much says that, right? She said she's in fear for her life. And right. I would think she would have been in shock when he brought John Bonet up because she thought she was sending him on a busy work mission, and here he comes back upstairs with the body. Yeah. Completely turns the whole thing she's doing that day into... Something totally different. Right. I tend to agree with you. But so that that's that kind of gives you a little bit of her position. And then um, as explained in the, the New Zealand Herald uh, in discussing a CBS docu-series called The Case of John JonBenet Ramsey, which aired in 2016, 
Retired FBI profiler Jim Clemente said, quote, In my opinion, the Ramsey family didn't want law enforcement to solve this case, and that's why it remains unsolved, end quote. In the final 20 minutes of the special, Clemente, along with other world-renowned forensic uh, scientists, Dr. Henry Lee, former chief investigator James Kohler, who had worked on the case, and leading forensic pathologist Dr. Werner Spitz, revealed that they believe that there's one person responsible for John Bonet's murder and that it's her older brother, Burke. I'm not ascribing to this, but I'm just telling you what they said. Uh, and then this is a quote. It says, expert Warner Spitz, retired Wayne State University professor and world-renowned authority on causes of death, who was involved in the investigation in 1996, said all fingers point still point to Burke. He went on to say, if you really, really use your free time to think about this case, you cannot come to a different conclusion. And continuing on, he said, it's the boy who did it, whether he was jealous or mentally unfit or something. I don't know the why. I'm not a psychiatrist. But what I am sure about is what I know about him. That that is what has happened here. And the parents changed the scene to make it look like something it wasn't, end quote. This is where we get the pineapple theory. Yeah. This doctor is, wasn't it a doctor, I think? Yeah, this doctor, he isn't saying it's because of the pineapple. He's saying he has no idea what the motive was. But, but the saying, evidence. Yeah, he's saying this is the killer. And so now we get the pineapple theory as the motive. To try to explain the why behind what set it all off, right? All right, well, I'd love to know what this evidence is that confirms it's Burke, because I, I haven't heard it yet. Yeah, well, <laughs> and you might be interested to know on, you know, the, the flip side of this uh, roundtable of experts kind of all pointing their fingers at Burke, Burke had a little something to say about that, and I can't say I blame him. I would have had something to say about it, too. So in response to the show airing, Burke sued CBS Corporation, Critical Content LLC, Jim Clemente, Laura Richards, A. James Kohler, James R. Fitzgerald, Stanley B. Burke, Werner Spitz, and Henry C. Lee in 2016 for defamation over the show where the opinions were offered and the lawsuit sought 750 million dollars in damages 250 in compensatory and 500 million in punitives uh-huh and then in january of 2019 burke settled the defamation lawsuit against the defendants for an undisclosed amount as reported by npr the case of john benet ramsey as the series was called purported to be a complete reinvestigation of the cold case and promised to feature a cadre of experts who independently reached the same conclusion as that presented in Kohler's book, that the six-year-old's brother had killed her. The complaint argued that those involved in the making of the documentary were not motivated by authentic reporting, but rather had set out to, quote, accomplish their goals of achieving ratings and profits. The suit contended, quote, CBS perpetrated a fraud upon the public instead of being a documentary based on a new investigation by a so-called team of experts. The case of John JonBenet Ramsey was a fictional crime show based primarily on a preconceived storyline scripted in a self-published and commercially unsuccessful book, Foreign Faction. Damn. So, and I'm sure that was uh, probably offered by, um, well, you know, it came from the complaint, so... Burke's attorney did that, but it's a it's a nice piece of writing. Um, yeah, it's written very well. I for sure it makes me think about you know we're we're discussing the case here on this podcast. We are not experts by any stretch of the imagination. We don't know shit. We weren't there, but uh, you know we're happy to talk it through, like we've seen in some other cases recently where the TV documentary seems to be one sided or leave out a lot of important things or whatever. I think that's definitely a thing. You know, TV shows they got to make money. Uh, fortunately for you and I, you know we're independently wealthy apparently, so uh, we just do this for funsies and don't make a dime. So we can just tell the truth. I got I got some lint in my pocket. I'm not speculating on any of these fancy schmancy experts. I've been watching Dr. Lee stuff for a long time but um you know it is it's not hard to imagine that a, a television show might be for the purposes of entertainment and not investigative journalism yeah for sure there's there's lots of lots of considerations there all the way around and i appreciate you know a lot of this is me sharing uh what we found that's uh, reporting on these different things and of course yeah I, I don't know i don't know what their intent was with creating that show or what they were setting out to do uh, i can't say one way or the other and like you said we weren't there and if you know, kind of the point of me going through all of these isn't to say we subscribe to or are siding with these people or this opinion or saying this person did it. It's more to just point out the juxtaposition of how conflicted the people who have worked on these this case throughout the years are. I mean, it really 
it's almost incredible that so many experts can look at one case, one set of evidence and all these things and come to just vastly different conclusions. And that's really the point I'm trying to make here. Yeah, and I think that starts with the two that you spoke about first, Smith and Thomas. Mm -hmm. They, it sounds like, were working the case at the same time, probably looking at the same evidence and the same facts, came to two wildly different opinions about how things were going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and now talking about Burke, right? So Detective Fred Patterson, you might recall from when we kind of outlined the, the narrative of the chronology of what took place. Um, he was one of the earlier on detectives to arrive and, and work, and uh, he was the one who first talked to Burke. And he seems to think that Burke had absolutely nothing to do with the crime. He said, quote, I found nothing that would indicate he, meaning Burke, even knew that she was dead. End quote. So, again, you look at all these different investigators, experts, people who worked the case uh, and have seen the evidence, have, have talked to these people, and very different outcomes. Very different. Now, there's been some mention about grand jury proceedings in, in the resignation letters and some of the other things. So, it's worth noting that a grand jury, after about a year of presentation, so for about a year's time, there was evidence presented to this grand jury by the DA's office. Apparently, they voted to indict John and Patsy Ramsey, but not for murder. There were two charges against each parent, and they were identical charges. The charges were that each of them did permit a child to be unreasonably placed in a situation which posed a threat to the child's life or health, which resulted in the death of John Bonet, and that each did render assistance to a person with the intent to hinder, delay, and prevent the discovery, detention, apprehension, prosecution, conviction, and punishment of such person for the commission of a crime, knowing the person being assisted has committed and was suspected of the crime of murder in the first degree and child abuse resulting in death. So those are the two charges. Essentially, it was sort of like this abuse neglect charge and then almost like an aiding and abetting charge that resulted in this. So you say, well, wait a second, they were indicted. What? I haven't heard about that trial. Well, a grand juror from John Bonet's case has said, quote, there's no way that I would have been able to say beyond a reasonable doubt, this is the person. And if you are the district attorney, if you know that going in, it's a waste of taxpayer dollars to do it. This is in referring to the fact that even though the grand jury voted to indict on these charges, the prosecutor in that case, uh, the DA at the time, basically just put it in his pocket and said, nope, I'm not proceeding because just because a grand jury indicts, and this can vary jurisdiction, jurisdiction, proceedings, whatever. Yeah, ultimately, the prosecutor has a duty to the people and to do justice, and that's where his duty lies. And so, you you know, there's the old saying, you can indict a ham sandwich, right? And the reason that saying exists is because it's really not difficult to indict somebody for something. You just need to, to show that, you know, that there's more likely than not that this could have happened, that this person did this thing. That doesn't take a whole lot of evidence to show that. But to prove in a, in a trial... To convict somebody, you need reasonable doubt. You need to be beyond reasonable doubt, and that's a whole other standard. And so, this grand juror who kind of spoke in anonymity, because you know there's some legal questions about whether he could even discuss these proceedings, has said, "Hey, listen, did I think that there was enough for me to say? Sure, we can in indict. Yeah, do I think that they showed us enough that's beyond reasonable doubt? Absolutely not. Right. Um, yeah. Now." While we're talking about grand juries, you got anything for that? Or? No, no. Okay. You no. Left? All right. You explained everything I was questioning. Okay, I thought I was reading the questions in your mind, so I'm glad I did a good job. Now, while we're talking about DAs, district attorneys, speaking with ABC News, Mary Lacey, which I'll talk about who she is in a second, said that just around the corner from John Bonet's room on the second floor, she saw an indentation in the carpet, and it caused chills to run down her spine. Now, this is a quote from her. She said, quote, it was a butt print. We all saw it. The entire area was undisturbed except for that place in the rug, end quote. Lacey, who was then the chief deputy district attorney heading up the sexual assault unit under Boulder County District Attorney Alex Hunter, is the one who said this stuff. And she also said, whoever did this sat outside her room and waited until everyone was asleep to kill her. The apparent presence of that indentation went on to help form a theory that Lacey believes to this day. Lacey's theory is when the Ramseys left to have Christmas night dinner with friends, they left the front door unlocked and a male intruder simply walked inside and waited for hours for the family to come home. During that time, Lacey believes he wrote the rambling two-and-a-half-page ransom note. That note referenced several lines from movies. 
The Boulder police should have checked all of the video stores to see who was renting those movies, and they never did, said Lacey. So what's most remarkable about D.A. Lacey's, or at that time, Assistant D.A. Lacey's uh, opinion of the case is that she would go on to eventually become the Boulder County District Attorney. And in July of 2008, she penned a letter to John Ramsey that was then also made publicly available. And I will read that letter for you. It's not as long as the last one, don't worry. Mr. John Ramsey, as you are aware, since December 2002, the Boulder District Attorney's Office has been the agency responsible for the investigation of the homicide of your daughter, John Bonet. I understand that the fact that we have not been able to identify the person who killed her is a great disappointment that is a continuing hardship for you and your family. However, significant new evidence has recently been discovered through the application of relatively new methods of DNA analysis. This new scientific evidence convinces us that it is appropriate, given the circumstances of this case, to state that we do not consider your immediate family, including you, your wife, Patsy, and your son, Burke, to be under any suspicion in the commission of this crime. I wish we could have done so before Miss Ramsey died. We became aware last summer that some private laboratories were conducting a new methodology described as touch DNA. One method of sampling for touch DNA is the scraping method. This is a process in which forensic scientists scrape places where there are no stains or other signs of the possible presence of DNA to recover for analysis any genetic material that might nonetheless be present. We contracted with the Bode Technology Group, a highly reputable laboratory recommended to us by several law enforcement agencies, to use the scraping method for touch DNA on the long johns that John Bonet wore and that were probably handled by the perpetrator during the course of this crime. The Bode Technology Laboratory was able to develop a profile from DNA recovered from two sides of the long johns. The previously identified profile from the crotch of the underwear worn by John Bonet at the time of the murder matched the DNA recovered from the Long Johns at Bode. Unexplained DNA on the on the victim of a crime is powerful evidence. The match of male DNA on two separate items of clothing worn by the victim at the time of the murder makes it clear to us that an unknown male handled these items. Despite substantial efforts over the years to identify the source of this DNA, there is no innocent explanation for its incriminating presence at three sites on these two different items of clothing that John Bonet was wearing at the time of her murder. Solving this crime remains our goal, and its ultimate resolution will depend on more than just matching DNA. However, given the history of the publicity surrounding this case, I believe it is important and appropriate to provide you with our opinion that your family was not responsible for this crime. Based on the DNA results and our serious consideration of all the other evidence, we are comfortable that the profile now in CODIS is the profile of the perpetrator of this murder. To the extent that we may have contributed in any way to the public perception that you might have been involved in this crime, I am deeply sorry. No innocent person should have to endure such an extensive trial in the court of public opinion, especially when public officials have not yet had sufficient evidence to initiate a trial in a court of law. I have the greatest respect for the way that you and your family have handled this adversity. I am aware that there will be those who continue, who will choose to continue to differ with our conclusion. But DNA is very often the most reliable forensic evidence we can hope to find, and we rely on it often to bring justice to those who have committed crimes. I am very comfortable that our conclusion that this evidence has vindicated your family is based firmly on all of the evidence, including the reliable forensic DNA evidence that has been developed as a result of advances in that scientific field during this investigation. We intend in the future to treat you as the victims of this crime, with the sympathy due you because of the horrific loss you suffered. Otherwise, we will continue to refrain from publicly discussing the evidence in this case. We hope that we will one day obtain a DNA match from the CODIS data bank that will lead to further evidence and to the solution of this crime. With recent legislative changes throughout the country, the number of profiles available for comparison in the CODIS data bank is growing steadily. Law enforcement agencies are receiving increasing numbers of cult hits on DNA profiles that have been in the system for many years. We hope that one day soon we will get a match to this perpetrator. We will, of course, contact you immediately. Perhaps only then will we begin to understand the psychopathy or motivation for this brutal and senseless crime. Respectfully, Mary T. Lacey, District Attorney. So we're following the theme here of Boulder Police seem to think it was someone in the house and the DA's office says no, it wasn't. Yeah, pretty much. And Boulder PD says DA's office is sticking their head in the ground for political reasons and whatnot. And DA's office says, no, PD just decided who did it, and now they're trying to prove it versus letting the evidence show it. Yeah. And so Lacey's explained that uh, she said, here's what I was doing with the exoneration letter. I was trying to prevent a horrible travesty of justice. I was scared to death that despite the fact that there was no evidence, no psychopathy, and no motive, the case was a train going down the track, and the Ramseys were tied to that track. But as you just kind of noted, and I'm sure everybody can imagine, there were plenty of people who were not a fan of that letter. 
Former Adams County DA Bob Grant, one of a number of consultants on the case brought in early by former Boulder County DA, told ABC News he was confounded by Lacey's 2008 letter. He said, quote, this is craziness. This is not what prosecutors do. If prosecutors are going to exonerate someone, they do it by charging someone else. Former Boulder Police Chief Mark Beckner, who headed up the department from 98 to 2014, said in an Ask Me Anything session on Reddit last year that the investigation considered the DNA important, but that there was other crucial evidence in the case that couldn't be ignored. Quote, Mary Lacey, the DA who said that DNA exonerated them, made up her mind years before that a mother could not do that to a child. Thus, the family was innocent. End quote. Beckner wrote. But forensic pathologist Lawrence Koblinski with the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, who has not worked on the case, but who reviewed a summary of the Bode report put together by Boulder County investigator Andy Harita prior to the publication of this other news report, told ABC News that ignoring the unknown male DNA would be a huge mistake. This is definitely a DNA case, he said. Koblinski said that the markers found on the long johns are not enough of a profile to actually, quote, match those found in the panties, as Lacey wrote in her letter, but that he would describe the markers from both the long johns and the panties as being consistent and noted that the DNA does belong to an unknown male. Also, he said Lacey did the right thing in clearing the Ramsey family. Interesting. And then another person who has commented on this, a former investigator for the DA's office named Gordon Coombs, and he worked in the office from 2008 to 2011, said that he feels Lacey got too close to the family and lost her objectivity. Quote, it was understood that if you didn't fall in line with the intruder theory, you were out, end quote. Well, that's what the police are saying, right? Right. Is that the DA's office didn't want to hear anything about anybody inside. And the police office didn't want to hear, or, or you know, the Boulder Police Department didn't want to hear anything about anybody outside, according to the DA's office. So, yeah, you have this. I mean, it's just uh, a lot of finger pointing. And the thing is, you know, if you believe both of them then it's it's super problematic right because nobody's actually following the evidence both sides are, are kind of tied to a theory that they just don't want to give up on and the outside people that have looked at this after the fact they're all coming to different conclusions as well right so in just talking through some of the things that that are are certainly troubling and you started to kind of get on this earlier right you're like What's really troubling is there's this little six-year-old girl who went to bed christmas night and was brutalized and murdered that's the worst part in the next episode, we'll talk about the people who have confessed to the murder of John Bonet and what's happened to John, Patsy, and Burke in the years since the murder. We'll see you there. Hey, thanks for hanging out with us on the Brothers in Crime podcast. Feedback and suggestions are always welcome. For links and resources related to this episode, please see the show notes or visit us at brothersincrimepodcast.com. We hope you'll save, subscribe, or bookmark us on your favorite podcast site and join us for the next episode.